This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend, Nate Tice. Nate, how you doing, buddy? Doing good. It, it's not only is it just me and you, it's it's our audience. We, we got, we, we, it's like me, you, and everybody else on this episode. It's going to be great. So we were going to have Lindsay Jones on today. Lindsay ran into some parenting stuff that she had to handle, which goes down when you have a, a young child, <laughs> which she does. So we miss Lindsay. We're going to have her on a ton over the next couple of months. Uh, just wanted to lay this out in kind of a housekeeping way. We're doing a mailbag show today. Thank you guys so much for the questions. I feel like I get emotional every time we do this because I sincerely appreciate the thoughtfulness that you guys put into them. It's why I don't mind leaning on them and doing them as often as we do just because I get so much out of them. I mean, a lot of these questions kind of push me to think about things in a different way, which I sincerely appreciate all the responses. I got a lot of them in my email that I will try to respond to. Um, just because they're really good. Some of them will hit in more considered ways as the offseason goes, which is kind of what I wanted to address. So we're going to do one show this week. This is going to be it. This is going to run on Wednesday. Starting next week, we're doing our offseason program, I guess is what we'll call it. We're going to be doing two shows a week. One of them is going to involve the people that you know, Nate, Lindsay, rotating cast of guests. We're going to do some really fun just kind of gimmicky ideas that we've been throwing around that I think are great and perfect for May and June when the off-season schedule opens up a little bit. The other show every week is going to be reserved for an interview. We're going to have GMs, head coaches, players. I don't want to say any of the names yet because I don't want to jinx them before they happen, but the list and the growing list, I'm very excited about it. So that is going to start next week. Be on the lookout for that two days a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. Before that, we're going to get into the mailbag. A lot of fun stuff. We're going to start with a question that I got in various forms, like (laughs) three or four different ones. So that's why I wanted to start with this one. Jake Russell is the one that I picked. He laid it out saying the Chargers destiny narrative. The Bucs in 2019 finished with seven wins, drafted an offensive tackle 13th overall, drafted a DB in the second round named after his all-pro father, then won the Super Bowl in their own stadium. 2020 Chargers finished with seven wins, drafted an offensive tackle 13th overall, drafted a DB in the second round named after his all-pro father, and the (laughs) Super Bowl will be held in Los Angeles next year. I was accused by multiple people of writing this Reddit (laughs) entry That has since become viral. I did not write it, but I can understand why you think I would. So we have delved into Chargers hype a decent amount on this show over the last couple months. I think, Nate, you and I both like what they did in free agency. We like what they came away with in the draft. Their plan and the talent they have on the roster, plus the coaching staff that's in place that we're excited about. There's a lot of reason to get pumped up about this Chargers team. Shielded his power rankings this week. They were ninth. They were ahead of the Browns. I mean, that is a team. If you put a team ninth in your power rankings, that's a legit contender. And this is a team that had a lot of holes last year. So this is what I want to ask you. Instead of saying, is this a team of destiny or how far can they go? Because a lot of people do believe that they're a legitimate playoff team. I want to ask you, is there a reason we shouldn't be putting the Chargers in this group? What are the reasons that maybe we should walk back this excitement a little bit before we get a little too ahead of ourselves i love how we figured out like you might be football's version of q like your qb anon 
with like this all this like coincidence conspiracy all the or the correlation that people are as the man who was driving the chargers and bucks bandwagons for most of the last seven years i can understand why people thought this was me your your qb anon uh but the the (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah this is this is like that I, i will be the devil's advocate here because really with the chargers i mean their offense is just so I mean, just fun. I mean, I'm just excited already thinking about it right now in May, thinking about their offense and the steps Herbert can take. The thing with Herbert, it was he was a bit of an outlier in the kind of like high variance situations, third down totally. against pressure. You know, the the argument for him is that he'll pick it up on all the other situations to kind of balance, balance out that regression, which I think he can do. Defensively, as you know, we love Staley. I mean, both of us on the show. And Really though, this, that front seven is kind of Joey Bosa and the Bosets. Like you yes. know, it kind of <laughs> is right at this point in time. So if you are going to hedge against them, is they have a lot of question marks up there? Are they going to be able to create a pass rush? Are they going to be able to even stop anybody in the run game? Um, those types of things that is going to be concerning. I am a fan of Staley, and I, I know we saw what he could do with a, a guy named Aaron Donald. Joey Bosa is a lot different than Aaron Donald, different skill set, but he is a dynamic player. But they also just going to need help with those other six guys, whether it be the nickel, all three linebackers, but also up front. You know, that is going to be their main hang up. And we'll we'll know a lot more. I, I think with the Chargers, it's like really early on, we're going to be like, yeah, they can contend or, or not. Because <laughs> they might, as much as we love the scheme and everything, and I think he is open enough to adapt to his personnel and what he has. It, it's just going to be, it's tough sledding for what they have up front right now. I think you have to really believe in his ability and guys like Ronaldo Hill and the rest of that defensive staff. Yes. And the defensive staff is really exciting. Great. Even beyond yeah. Staley, <laughs> the fact that they got Ronaldo Hill, who they're very excited about, Jay Rogers, who's done a fantastic job with the Bears front over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Think about guys like Roy Robertson Harris getting paid and how many guys have come out of Chicago in the front four in part because of the way that he's helped to develop them. But even if you're excited about it and optimistic about what the staff can do, you still there's a lot of projection with this defensive <laughs> yeah. personnel. The the front seven is a huge question mark. I mean, outside of Bosa, you got Chenna Nuosu and Kyler Fekrell as their edge players. On the interior, yeah. Jerry Tillery, who has not come along in the way that they would like, and Linval Joseph. I mean, it is not a great group up front. And I think the depth on the back end is the other part of this. Yes. If guys stay healthy, they could be great. But even that. You guys like Chris Harris, Michael Davis, mm-hmm. I mean, Nasir Adderley, we are, that's projection for those guys. Even if they stayed healthy all year, I still feel like that's a tough needle to thread. So the best version of the Chargers, I think, goes along with some of these other teams, with Cleveland, Buffalo, whoever else. But I still think that other teams are better set up for a for some attrition, right? They can lose yeah. players. They can deal with some health luck. The chart, the Browns, I think, are much deeper, especially in the back seven than this Chargers team is. That's my only concern. Is I just think that there are more timelines where the Browns and the Bills are good than the Chargers. That being said, at thirty to one to win the Super Bowl, I still think they're really interesting. <laughs> and that's and that's like a proper odd. Like we we talk about the paths to success, not just for players but teams and their windows. It's like for them. To be a contender, health luck has to happen, and some of these guys have to ascend. The coaching comes in. They kind of utilize these guys exactly how they need to, but that's just such a narrow band of success. I do think they're going to be very, very competitive this year, uh, no matter what, no matter how it shakes out for them, which I think is going to be really fun. That's what good coaching really does is even if you have you know shit 
uh, out there, they're at least going to make them competent where it's like not guys just tripping over themselves. It's just like they just give up 40 a week or 40 a game every week. So I, I think that's where it's like their bar has it's been raised up a little bit. It's just that it's a very, very narrow band to maybe uh, kind of do with this, like, you know, this conspiracy that we have going <laughs> with, the, with, with the box and stuff. I know even like rereading this stuff, like even as I was talking to you right now, it's like, do I have to like start watching like Chargers film backwards to find the hidden message? Like, the, <laughs> like that's like just what we have to do now. But it's it, uh, it's exciting. I, that offense is just gonna be so much fun. I love how they piece things together. Uh, I, I we got to talk about it on the draft show. That's how excited we were. It's just it, that's really stuff is adding up there, and it makes sense, especially offensively. It's just defense can have those question marks, and we'll see. We'll see very quickly uh, where they have answers. I can't wait to see what it looks like on offense and yeah. defense because you, know, you think you have ideas. You look at what Joe Lombardi did in New Orleans. I think there's going to be a lot of mixed personnel packages and aspects of that New Orleans offense, older aspects of that New Orleans offense when they were pushing the ball down the field a little yeah. bit more and it was a little more vertical. I can't wait to see what this version of it looks like around Herbert filtered through their offensive personnel. And on defense, it's not going to look the same as it no. did with the Rams last year because it's going to be informed by the players that they have and the players that they have, the strengths are very different. They very. did everything they could last year to get their linebackers off the field. Now, you have a first-round linebacker they traded up for last year, and now that position is almost a strength relative to the other position groups they have on defense. So that, to me, is, is really exciting. But that's what they are to me. They're exciting. I still think yeah. the way that you put it is right. The narrow band exists for them in a way that it doesn't with some of these other AFC contenders. Okay. I really like this one. This is from Chris who's going deep on Twitter. If you guys had to choose only one, who is your favorite non-quarterback player of all time? He said that his was Ed Reed, which is a great answer. Ed yeah. Reed is probably up there for me. So those Ravens teams in general were awesome to watch. Like Chris McAllister, there were so many just fun players in the, that group. The super that you role players about. were memorable. Yeah, yes. like the, yes. those role players were memorable. That's when you know it's a fun team is when you remember the other guys on those teams. And everyone's like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That guy was great. Yeah. So I that's him. that kind of applies to my a couple of my answers. I have a lot of bears. Like Charles Tillman will just always have a place in my heart that will never be taken away. I yeah. loved watching Lance Briggs play. Uh, Tommy yeah. Harris. People forget how incredible Tommy Harris was before he like, hurt his knees. Dominant. He was unbelievable. And those that group in like 04 through 06, or like 05 through in 06, those teams were just amazing to watch defensively. Non-Bears division, I think we might have the same answer. Who's yours? Oh, Randy Moss. That is and like So is mine. Yeah, I mean that was it's pretty easy for for, what, for you I mean, it's easy. My, yeah, for even my Twitter profile it says Randy Ratio for life. I mean <laughs> that's how I'm gonna live with that stuff. Um, Randy's just I got to see every day in practice, not just games, just incredible human feats. Like it's it's hard to put into words just when you see that tier of athlete and football player just every day, and because he was so healthy all the time too. That was an understated yeah. thing with Randy. Well, he's it's not human. That, He's just he's on not, an entirely he's not different human. plan of He's existence. a super freak. That was yeah. his nickname, a super freak, and it, it's, it makes sense. If I'm going non-Randy, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Vikings, like Kevin Williams. Uh, oh, yeah. Love, love Kevin Williams. Mo Williams, who was a uh, role-playing running back, I love because you know he just did everything, third down protection, and Moelde Moore. 
Like those are like, those are my favorite players as Vikings and they're just role playing running backs. And if you ever hear me talk about running backs, it's, you can see where I got my favorite type of guy. <laughs> it's Mo Williams <laughs> and Mo Alde Moore. If you want to know what type of running back I like, God, non-Vikings though would be really hard for me because like in my head, I was always just like, I don't like him. I don't like him. I don't like him because they're yeah. trying to beat the Vikings. I mean, I really did like Favre, uh, but that's quarterback. So did uh, I. I know it's you appreciate him once you see him live and stuff. It's like that guy's really dang good. Um, I'm just actually now I'm trying to think like non-Vikings because I, I my entire childhood was the Vikings. And then it's just hilarious after what happened with my dad at the end. I kind of was like, I disavowed the Vikings for five years. And then now it's back to like, yeah, I kind of really like those teams back in the day. <laughs> Randy Moss is definitely mine. I mean, in the era before Sunday Ticket, when you could only just watch the local games when I was younger, I watched a lot of NFC Central and NFC North games. I mean, that those yep. were I got to watch Randy Moss twice a, a year, and I was always just blown away by him. I mean, those Culpepper Moss teams, for our younger listeners, for those people who never watched those teams, it was like a cosmic event. I mean, it was like an out-of-body experience to watch those two guys play with one another. And obviously, the the 98 team with Randall was incredible. But Culpepper and Moss just together, just otherworldly levels of physical ability in one offensive huddle. That's like Chris Carter was there. (laughs) It's just absolutely amazing. Nate Burleson came along later. And that's the thing is it was the, the perfect super skill of Dante, which was he threw the greatest deep ball ever. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what off? And then also with Randy, who's the greatest deep threat, you know, ever to play the game. It was just that, per- like you said, the cosmic event, like the sound that I hear, and it's, I'll never probably hear that. I mean, you hear it a little bit, but there's no sound that has been burning my brain more than when you would start seeing Dante kind of raise his shoulder up and the people yeah. that would go to the games at the Metrodome knew what that was about, what that meant. So on the sideline, you know, cause it's quiet on offense, you would just hear everyone standing up at the same time because <laughs> you just knew everyone's going oh like a roller coaster it's like oh yeah. like and everyone's standing up and i remember reading a a article years and years ago they were talking about when oh when moss went to the patriots and uh actually it's one of your former bosses uh but he was talking about oh you know i that sound that ever that anticipate everyone anticipating that deep throw sound from tom brady to randy moss and i was just remember going like oh i know that sound like i i it's it's just, I hear it all the time or I don't hear it all the time, but I just want to hear that sound because there's just such a specific thing that would happen. And that's the only way to describe it. It was an event. It was an event to see those deep balls thrown every Sunday or Monday nights. And it was just, it was the coolest thing I think on a football on I've ever seen on a football field. Cause it happened weekly. Um, if, and I finally found a non quarterback, non Viking answer. And it was probably Julius peppers. Um, I, and I, Julius peppers is on my list too. Just because, just, yeah, he's the, dynamic force <laughs> those, those couple of i i never understood and again this is before i started covering the league i was still in college when julius pepper signed with the bears i had never watched him down in and down out just because how many nationally televised panthers yeah. games were there yeah so when he got there i just never knew how good he was i mean obviously you knew the pass rushing stats and you knew the pedigree and where he was drafted and everything else but every single player, he would just do something ridiculous. Yeah. I remember I remember Urlacher that year, and I've talked with Brian Urlacher about this. We've had like real conversations about what the best Bears defenses were. When I was working on other stories, I would just go total Chris Farley show and be like, what about that 05 team? And we would just talk about it for 10 minutes. And he was do actually down in 2006 to do it. when you, you dropped back in Tampa coverage. Yeah. It was really funny. And we I remember him saying that it was at the end of that 2010 year, I think it was when they won the divisional game. And he was sitting at 
the table with like Terry Bradshaw and all of them after the game. I was like, I don't know how you could say anyone else is defensive player of the year. That's the best football player on earth when he was yeah. talking about Peppers. And that's how I felt watching him that year. But with Moss, it was a combination of childhood and then this, the fall of 2007 is my, maybe my favorite fall I, I've ever had as a football fan because I was 19 years old. I was 20. I was 20 years old. And we found this incredible bar in Columbia, Missouri. It was called the Coliseum. And they had this amazing football setup. We sat in the middle of the room. And there were TVs all around. And the food was great. Like They had this amazing skillet cookie that you could eat all of when you were 20 and it didn't matter. And we would just sit there and watch football all Sunday. And yeah. the 07 Pats were just this force of nature. Yeah. I, I just will never, ever forget that game against Miami where he had those two just ridiculous touchdown catches. And so that fall just is burned into my brain. So I, there's really no other answer Every, for me. Everyone remembers that Dolphins game. I remember where yeah. I was. I was a freshman at UCF at that time. And I remember, because I wouldn't get to watch a ton of the Sunday games. I could like watch one or two um, because we'd have stuff during the season. Mm-hmm. And, and you know we're in the middle of our college season. And I remember that Dolphins game vividly and not yeah. just the highlights, but just every, I just remember the one long bomb and it was triple coverage. And you could tell Brady just said, all right, screw it. I'm tossing this thing up. We're on fire. Well, he right had the now. one over, it was Cameron <laughs> yep. Worrell, right? Or yep. was it? Yep. So it was over Cameron Worrell. And then he, he had the one he, he caught with one hand on his hip. It yep. was just like, he, li- he literally mossed him, you know? Yes. It was, <laughs> it was just like, it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I've never, 2007, that that mo- was a good year. <laughs> that was the most talented football. He's the most talented football player I've ever seen. Like I don't. That is the 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 biggest gap between one player and everyone else on the field to me is is Randy Moss. Like there's just no other answer in my opinion. All right. Yeah. So second question from Chris. I I very rarely do this, but I think this is a fun one. It's never too early to start talking about this. Ethan Wagner had a similar question. If you had to bet on one long shot plus one thousand or higher for this year's MVP, where is your money going? It's a really interesting list. Yeah. My two favorites. So some of the examples, Josh Allen's 11 to one, Brady's 14 to one, Stafford 14 to one, Dak is 16 to one. My two favorites are Baker at 33 to one, simply because I think you, I like betting on teams that are going to be really good. You know, if the Browns are 13 and three, yeah, if the Browns are 13 and three, which I think that if you're a Super Bowl contender and you're the quarterback of a Super Bowl contender, 33 to one is pretty high for your MVP odds. Mm -hmm. And Justin Herbert at 20 to one. Like there's just a chance that Justin Herbert owns this NFL season, and be, he's the next one to ascend into that tier in and, year two, can, which we've seen with could, several guys. And you could easily see it happening. I I also had Baker as one, and I said the narrative swell if he has a good season. Yes, and and I think Stafford at fourteen to one. Um, it's fun. I, yeah, I, I could see that's the if I were a betting man, which I am, I would probably that's where I probably would <laughs> lean towards. Um, because I, I it's just, frowned I upon for it. me to bet on the NFL, so I typically yeah, don't. Exactly, and I I could just see that I could see the kind of how that offense unlocks with him. They're adding the deep threats with Deshaun Jackson too. Totally. Out well, can see this kind of new age thing that they try to do and yeah or not new age but just new version of the mcveigh offense so i'm really curious about that one because i i think they could blitzkrieg some people early on and and you stafford's arm's going to be sore from <laughs> going bombs away next one here the real vivek i love this question who is the worst quarterback in the league capable of this winning is- a super bowl without requiring the best surrounding talent this is the best wrench in this <laughs> So as in who is the best quarterback who can win a Super Bowl with the fifth best roster in the league? And the reason this is great is that we have recent examples of guys that can win a Super Bowl or get very close 
with arguably the best roster in the league, right? Yep. Nick Foles won a Super Bowl. But I think that the Eagles probably had the best talent in the NFL that year. Yep. Jared Goff and Jimmy Garoppolo almost won Super Bowls. But I think you could argue that the Rams and Niners might have been better than the fifth best roster in the league. So where are the lines here? Where are the This is a great question, by the way. It's great. I love this. This one was great because it's so much different than the usual. Can you win with him? Or, exactly. or can you or what's the bar? The bar, you know, the Mendoza line, basically. What's your answer? Well, who did you go with? I went Kyler. Um, really? And- oh, I went lower than that. Okay. And then that's what got me really kind of like, I, man, I changed this answer a lot. Like Kyler and then like Derek Carr, I think is like, that is where I'm at. That, and, that's, and that's the zip code I'm shopping in here. That's what seventh, eighth best quarterback. You know, we're kind of hunting around that range. We're getting into, you know, you think Derek Carr <sighs> is the seventh best quarterback in the NFL? Last season, yeah, had a decent year, but I, no, I would say he's more like 10th, 12th, 10th. I would say 10th in a good year. Uh, so, but that, that's what, that's the zip code we're hunting in. And now I'm like, right. I'm sorry. I, I'm answering slow because I'm counting in my brain. How many, that, how many I have had? Cause I had Rogers, Mahomes, Allen, Russ, Brady, obviously Stafford. And then now we're getting into this next tier of guys. Like, well, Matt you know, Ryan like, clearly, I think Matt Ryan clearly does it. I think Dak Matt, clearly Dak does is, it. Dak is clearly, yeah. Dak's upper t- elite tier for me. So I'm, yeah, uh, that's why I didn't even mention him. Sorry, man. So yeah, I think Kyler, I want to hear what you say now. So I'm in the Dirk, Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins zone. That's okay. that's where I sit right here because I think both of those guys have quarterbacked top 10 offenses in the last few years. And I think with the right help, but not perfect help, both of those guys could win a Super Bowl. I can imagine that in my mind. Yeah. I think that it's between like the 12th and and 15th best quarterbacks in the NFL could probably do it with the fifth best roster. If you look at some of the stats, Cousins is 13th in the EPA CP, uh, completion percentage over expectation composite that Ben Baldwin does over the last five years. Carr is 17th. So those okay. are like the types of guys I think could do it. The problem here is that those are the exact type of guys that can do it. So you pay them $27 million a year and say, oh, he's good enough to win with. So yep. those are, they probably clear the bar, but you get into a real danger zone with those sorts of quarterbacks. And, and I think that's why it's a fascinating question. And that's why I probably went that tier above that. Like I was like, man, because now you're getting into that above average to good range where it's like, yeah, I could squint and see that. But I was like, man, if I'm just like gone to head, is I, am I putting money on Kirk Cousins to lead me with an av- above average roster? <laughs> it's like, Ugh! but I could at least bet on Kyler because I know Kyler can create. You know, that's in my head. That's how that's the argument like I was going with. But man, that is just like, because the car rate, like car, car is a perfect example of this. Because we've seen, I totally agree. Roster around, yeah, and you see it, but then you see when it's not as great, and it's like, man, you know, is he even average? And that's that's, I know uh, that's a great question. I'm sticking with Kyler, but I can easily get down to that Kirk and uh, the Kirk and Derek Carr range because it's like that's kind of like that's the line. Can we win a Super Bowl with this guy? And that's kind of what the line is usually drawn at. All right, so let's. How about we do this with Derek Carr? If you had had the, the 2017 or 2019 Raiders or two, okay. the 2020 Raiders, both, I think, okay. borderline top 10 offenses yep. with the eighth best defense in the NFL. Yeah. That, that, that team could possibly great. win a that's Super good. Bowl. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that would absolutely. probably be like a top five to seven-ish roster. And that team could probably win a Super Bowl. So oh, that's... 
Yeah, now, see? I'm just going to be thinking about this for a while. <laughs> All right, we have to move on, and we're going to spend like yeah, 10 hours yeah. on this. So the juice on Twitter, this is a question solely for you. <laughs> he is a CFL season ticket holder. They haven't been able to play because of the pandemic, so he's been watching a little bit more of the NFL. Former CFL MVP Henry Burris and sh- former Chicago Bears quarterback Henry Burris is now in Chicago, he says, as a quality control coach. What is an NFL quality control coach? Because they do not have those in the CFL. I figured okay. you were a perfect guy to answer this question. Yeah, because I might have might have had that role. Um, you know, the I, the job I believe was started like John Gruden was the first quality control coach, at least how my memory serves, anyways, with the Eagles. And but really, you're just wearing every hat possible. So every team will typically have uh, you have your position coaches, you know, receiver coach, offensive line, quarterback, offensive coordinator, et cetera, et cetera. But then you will get into assistant receiver coach, and then below that, you'll get into quality control coach or offensive assistant. And really, it's kind of what the title says is quality control. <laughs> you kind of are just you're wearing every hat possible. Um, so like a day to day life for me, usually there's two of these guys, maybe three on each on each staff. You'll have the assistant offensive line coach and maybe two quality c- control type of coaches that kind of do all the grunt work. Um, but like day to week to week, like in the game or, or during uh, the season, um, a lot of data entry for opponent breakdown. So if I were about to play the Eagles, I'd look at their previous three games and their or previous four games, actually, maybe another game that the offensive coordinator wants to see. And you break it down completely. Offensive formation, offensive down and distance, offensive personnel, but then also defensive. Like, what's the defensive front? What's the defensive personnel? What's the defensive coverage? Um, did they blitz? All that kind of data that, you know, a lot of actually what kind of, you know, companies like PFF have kind of like taken. And so you can see it publicly. But just think of each team having their own language for that. Most of it applies to all, but you have your own ver- version of that. But you do that for other teams. You do it for yourself, it's for people to study. Um, you know, it's formation family stuff. And then also you just have to, offense coordinator, we have our base plays, but then maybe we have to come up with new plays for this game plan. You have to draw them on the computer. Use Visio, use other, other software there. You have to work it digitally and, and draw through that sense and either print or upload them to everyone's iPad. That's what kind of what they would do now. We save the trees, which is very good, which I prefer because <laughs> it used to be if you had to make one change, certain coaches would go, okay, so you're going to print out new copies for everybody. And you're like, that's that's like 92 copies I'm about to print out. They're, okay, you got that? <laughs> okay, yeah, I can do that for one change and change like a whole packet of stuff. But anyways, um, <sighs> other things. I practice, you have to do uh, usually, okay, drills. You're kind of doing everything, holding bags, drills. You are coaching still. Like, say I worked with quarterbacks, I'd still be, you know, talking to EJ Manuel and Connor Cook and the backup quarterbacks with the Raiders. Also, during the season, you're in charge of the the scout team. So, I'm an offensive guy. I'd be working with the defensive scout team. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, hey, I noticed the look. What do you guys call this in your defense? Okay, you call it. Okay, okay, you call this cloud, cloud. All right, here we go. We're going cloud, cloud. You know, trying to speak those languages, which is great learning experience when you're a young coach. Don't get me wrong. Totally. I mean it. Yeah. And also talking to defensive guys and picking their brain and stuff. Um, you just do anything needed. Like, and then in the off season, you get into, you know, get into scouting. You have to maybe do something on that aspect. And on game days, you know, I would chart plays. So whatever the play call was, you know, gun tree or right, blue sword. Okay. Boom. I'm writing that down. First, first and 10. What was that? We're at the 25 yard line. You have to write all that down because as the game goes on, that's where adjustments can come from. Hey, last four first downs have it been run pass? Oh, you've been run every four, four last four first downs. Okay, you know you're just like trying to build your own like current game tendencies, basically hand cranking it without because you don't get computers up there. Um, you know what have they been running on third and long? Because you have to break down the defense as the game is going. So it's like, man, the last time it's been third and seven or more, they ran you know they ran two man, which we hadn't seen all week or the last you know from the mm-hmm. opponent breakdown that I did for the previous games. 
So that's the type of stuff on game day. You're really, you know, you just kind of have to be on your toes and keep your charts and keeping details. Anything you see, it's like, Hey man, every time we've been in 11 personnel, we see them running this coverage, you know, maybe giving ideas to the play caller, those types of things. You just have to do everything. Um, every team's going to be different. Some teams might have you do, you know, handle a certain type of down and distance situation. Some might just go, no, you're just a data entry grunt. It just all depends on the offense coordinator, what the head coach prefers, but yeah, long story short, you do everything. <laughs> That's what a quality control coach is. Uh, my contributions to this conversation are just me and you over the shuffleboard table at Kilroy's in Indianapolis <laughs> during the combine, and, and you just bitching about all of the different things you'd have to do as a quality oh. control coach. And just oh, God, we we do all the work. That they just we do everything. I'm cutting together all this film. Just that's my contribution because I remembered you as a quality control coach, and I remember those conversations vividly. Oh, it's just like because there's sometimes you're just like, oh my god, I'm doing okay. You do hours and hours of work so somebody can get one answer and go like, yes, oh, okay, yes. Oh, okay. So we run the ball a lot. Cool. Like and it's just like okay, okay, and you just do that constantly. It's part of the job. Yeah. Everybody has to do it. But yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of thankless work, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> All right, so the juice, there's your answer. That's what a quality control coach is. All right, <laughs> next one here. John Lewis, I liked this question. I actually asked a couple people about it. If you could pick any coach in football to be the Ravens offensive coordinator play caller, who would you pick and why? This is driven by, I think, John doesn't think Greg Roman is doing the most with this or can evolve the passing game where they want it to go. So he wants to know who the best person would be to develop this passing game while still taking advantage of what makes Lamar Lamar. My easy answer was Shanahan. You think about the personnel that you're swapping out. It's a run-heavy offense, very personnel packages, using a fullback, just the types of receivers, even especially now with Bateman. Bateman just would be a really good Shanahan system receiver. The perfect X for him, yeah. I also think that they've the Niners have folded in a lot more gap runs over the last couple of years, so there's more overlap Mm -hmm. between the structure of the run game than there would have been five years ago. The other one that a play caller that I asked about this brought up to me was McDaniels because you saw what they could do with the quarterback run game a little bit with Cam this year. And there's a lot more gap runs in New England's offense than some of the other offenses around the league. So there would be a lot that's translatable and you have one of the best play callers of the last 10 years and the way that they've designed the passing game, everything else. I think the challenge with this question is that we just don't know how a lot of really good play callers in the league would handle or design the quarterback run game because they've never had someone that they've had to do this with. And with Shanahan, we've at least seen RG3. They just drafted Trey Lance. We know that there's motivation there. And then again, with McDaniels, we just saw what they did with Cam. But with guys like Andy Reid or Sean Payton, people like that, it's much more of a mystery and much more of a question as to how they would handle that personnel. So who'd you go with? No, I love the uh, uh, the McDaniel's answer, and honestly, that's such a great point that you made real quick. Was the hey, we don't know what these guys would look like until they get this type of personnel because like, yeah. a guy like Nor- Norv Turner, he never had a running quarterback, and all of a sudden he gets camp for a year, and it was like, oh, okay, he's got some of those wrinkles in yeah. there. Okay, with a modern passing game. Oh, cool. Um, Norv was one of my answers, but uh, you know, I actually I I'm sticking with McVeigh. And just because I, I know it's a zone scheme and everything, but just what he did with John Wolford last year, it was like, oh, mm-hmm. I just saw a little those little hints that there's more there. There's more to the, the McVeigh brain, even more than what you have seen. And I was, that's the one, because honestly, 
I think Lamar would finish games going seven for nine passing and the games would end up, <laughs> the, the, the game would finish in about two hours. Like it would be great. Se- seven of nine for 200 yards and three touchdowns. Yeah, exactly. that, I mean, that's what it'd be. And it'd be over yeah. routes, which Lamar could throw, you know, yep. I, I could. So like that, I could piece together if I'm going any level of football. I, this is a little bit of a biased answer, but I actually think it would be perfect as Paul Christ. Um, because just the gap running scheme with Wisconsin, I know he's a head coach, so there's no way he's calling offensive plays <laughs> at the NFL level. Um, but like, honestly, I would love to see him calling plays for Lamar because I know he could do, we never, Wisconsin doesn't really have quarterback that can run until other than Russell. And I saw what we could do with him and also just the passing. It's all play action, heavy stuff. The dropback stuff's really easy to read out. It's just, there's a lot of it. Uh, but honestly, I would be really that would be amazing to watch him operate with with a guy like Lamar because he just probably has never had something like that. But I know he has the QB run game in there. But I would say short answer is McVeigh. I mean, there's just a lot of guys that, like you just said, you don't know what they can do until they get a guy that can do it. <laughs> and I mean, that's why McDaniels would be really, really interesting too because it's like, okay, oh, we've seen hints at it and now he gets a totally different type of weapon. And this is just my lack of imagination. If the guy hasn't done it yet, I don't know what he can do. So it's not going to be one of my answers. But the it's guys hard. we've seen do it at least a little bit I just think the projection is a lot easier. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. William Aaronclough, this is for you. This is all for you, buddy. He said he's interested in a discussion about Darnold and the Panthers. Any insight into what they may see in him? Something in his skill set that suits Joe Brady's offense. He also asked, does he think, does we, do we think there's buyers remorse now that they could have had fields? We won't get into that, but you are the perfect person to ask about this because you never got off Darnold Island. You were always team Darnold. You never stopped believing. (laughs) So I'm, you and I, I don't think have talked about this on the show actually about how he fits them and what they do offensively. So when you're imagining the Darnold Brady fit, what do you think works? I think, well, one thing that Brady showed me last year is that he can adapt. We we don't have much to go off of with Joe Brady's play calling career. We have one year at LSU and one yeah. year and the in the year at LSU. We have to remember is that he had another offensive coordinator there that was calling plays as well. He just handled the passing game. So you got to keep that in mind too. But then this past season, I was like, oh, there's more to you. You you can adapt your stuff. Like he had Robbie Anderson working from the slot, running mm-hmm. all the. He was dominating under underneath routes, and I was like, okay, and that's totally different than what I saw at LSU. And I think- Isn't that fun, by the way, the idea of Moore, Anderson, and Marshall could all play inside and out in that offense this year? There's a lot of fun stuff there. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's just, I'm already thinking about that. I mean, and I'm going to answer Joe Brady first before I get to my my Darnold love. Um, But I I think with Joe Brady is just, you know, I think he is going to be leaning towards more of that bunch, that why off stuff. I talked about when we were talking about Tommy Tremble um, with the Panthers draft. Lots of 11 personnel. I do think he does adapt, but I think that's where he's going more and more towards. He's going to get to that preferred. I have these sets of formations and I run a couple things off of them very, very well that have answers. Um, And I think with Darnold is that he's better on play action stuff because it makes his read simpler. I think Darnold's another quarterback that less Sneaky good athlete too. Moves well. Sneaky good athlete. Big, willing to keep his eyes downfield almost to his detriment. 
Um, I still think, think you know, Darnold's younger. I'm always going to bring up the point that he's younger. I, I, I think he's still learning to be a QB. I know it's his fourth year in the NFL, but I just don't think that situation was very conducive to be learning to be an NFL quarterback. Um, so I think he struggles to get past the second read because he's just not comfortable with a ton of concepts. I think he is a very narrow band, a very narrow, you know, playbook like that he has to operate in. And guess what? I think Joe Brady is a guy that's fine with that. And he's just going to go, okay, where are the seven things that you're really good at? We're going to do nothing but those seven things. Cause that's what he did at LSU with Joe Burrow. He's like, okay, what are you good at? Okay. We have this RPO. We really like, okay, we're going to run this duo spam RPO the shit out of it and spam the shit out of it. Cause we can throw it all day. And then we can go into empty it. Cause Burrow's a quick operator and he create with his legs. So that's what they did. And this past year, they had Teddy Bridgewater. So what they do? A lot of stuff that was underneath, a lot of timing throws, a lot of under routes, a lot of slant routes, a lot of high lows. Can, Teddy can go one, two, three and deliver a throw. So I think he's going to adapt a little bit more. So it's going to be kind of a new version of, of a Joe Brady uh, uh, scheme. But I do think it's going to be some of that we just talked about with Lombardi with the Saints or, or the Saints influence. I think some of that older Saints stuff is going to come into play. Some of the more shoddy play action stuff, not Schottenheimer, but shot, shot type plays um, with a lot of play action stuff with overs and posts. And I, you hear me talk about that all the time because those are simpler reads for a quarterback. And I think Darnold would benefit from that because he is an aggressive player who keeps his eyes downfield and he can use his legs a little bit. So I think that's what we're going to see more of. And I think maybe that's what they see with him is that, yeah, we can we can maybe grow this guy even more. I mean, he's was probably the worst starter in the league last year. And so I'd say over the last only, three years hope, combined. Hopefully there's some room for growth there. Otherwise, yeah, they might have buyer's remorse. I will say, and there are probably a couple of teams that you, we're going to talk about the Colts a little bit later in the show, but teams that might have buyer's remorse. I think both the Patriots, both the Colts and the Panthers, maybe there's a chance that Indy would have rather traded a future first round pick and gone to get Justin Fields rather than going to get Wentz. Maybe the Panthers would have rather had Wentz, or Fields than Darnold. I do think that there's it's a long shot for those guys to resurrect their careers. If I could pick the two offenses where they would be able to resurrect their careers, I think it would be the respective offenses they landed in. I think Joe Brady has as good a chance as anybody to lift Sam Darnold, and I think that Frank Reich has the best chance of anyone to right the ship with Carson Wentz. I really do. I, I don't know if that'll happen, but I think that these are the best places for them to have a real shot. I agree. I agree. Because if, if Darnold ended up with the Broncos, it would just be messy, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. think it'd just been a messy situation. It's just, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree with what you said. All right. Anthony Beltrano asks, what price is too high for a proven quarterback in the league, especially for a team that can't draft quarterbacks? He said the Bears in here, which is bullshit. I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> they Bears up Justin Fields now. Broncos, Washington, those are good examples. I, I feel like I've done this before. Because I think I, I'm on record saying Patrick Mahomes is worth like seven first round picks. But I want to kind of get into it in a more practical way. Michael Arroyo also asked a related question. So I'm curious what you think. What, what in, in the Mahomes-Wilson tier, what do you think a reasonable asking price would be? Base, 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 baseline would probably be four first. And then, then you get into where do you go off of that? Do you go, okay, what package of mid picks and players that you go off of that? But I think if you're going, we're trading for Russell Wilson tomorrow. I, I think four, four first rounders is just, that's where the baseline is. And then it's just whatever, what else you can throw in there? And it has to be viable players. It's probably four first rounders, a couple, a third and two starters of something of that sort. Um, probably helps make the money work and whatnot too. But 
I, I, I think that's what you need. It's four first, two second or third rounders and a player or some combination of that. Uh, uh, that that's needed. That's even just get the talks open because I think what does Stafford go for? It's like two. that. Yeah. It has to be another step above that <laughs> because this, uh, we're talking about a little bit younger and a little bit more to him, I guess, as a player. Um, so I think, I think that's where the baseline is, is four first. All right. So let's think about this practically. Okay. Let's say you're the Broncos, a team that yeah. needs a quarterback. Let's go back and get in a time machine and go to 2017. And we'll go with the time machine in another direction. I can tell you for certain that Patrick Mahomes is going to be Patrick Mahomes. I can show you the future. Yeah. And I can promise you before the 2017 draft, he is going to be the guy that we have seen. What would he then be worth? Whew. If the Broncos traded their, first, their next five first-round picks to get Mahomes in that draft, they would have traded Garrett Bowles, Bradley Chubb, Noah Fant, Jerry Judy, and Patrick Sertan for Patrick Mahomes. You do that every time, wouldn't you? Yes. You, I think you would do that every single time. And I also think that's yes. a fairly representative sample of how first-round picks tend to go. You've got a couple hits in there. Bowles turned his career around. Chubb is a good yep. player. Fant is, we'll see. Judy yep. wasn't very good, but is promising. And Sertan is totally unproven, okay? Yep. So I think you make that trade if you're Denver. I think you probably give them even more if it yeah. if you had to. So that's five. So we could probably get Whew. to six or seven if we wanted to push it. I also think the Chiefs are kind of an example of this, right? They deal a future first for Mahomes. They deal a future first to get Frank Clark plus more. They pay up for Sammy Watkins, who doesn't play very well. They drafted a running back in the first round. I'm not saying that the Clyde Edwards-Alaire pick is a total waste, but that's the Chiefs, in my opinion, are a useful example of what the right quarterback covers up. And I think the Seahawks are an even better example. This is almost an exper like experimental conditions to do this. From 2015 through 2020, here are the Seahawks' top 35 picks. Didn't have one in 2015 because the Jimmy Graham trade. Jermaine Effetti in 2016. Malik McDowell in 2017. Rashad Penny in 2018. LJ Collier in 2019. And Jordan Brooks in 2020. They're perennially, perennially a playoff team. Yeah. They're almost an example of this if you were to trade five first-round picks for a guy like Russell Wilson. I still think you're better off. So in my opinion, so it's like five. And yeah. that's why when the idea of the Bears trading three, every time, you do yeah. it every single time because I just think that a team would never do five because a lot of this stuff is based on precedent. And I think if you were having a conversation with the Russell Wilson situation, it would unfold exactly how you laid it out. What did Matthew Stafford go for? will give you 50% more than that or twice yep. as much as that, whatever. It would start from there and go. So I don't think you'd ever get to seven. But I just think that it's impossible to overstate what the right guy at that position does for you. Because the right guy at that position covers up for all of those holes you're going to have by trading those guys. I think that realistically, I would trade six to seven first-round picks for the right quarterback. I think I would. And oh um, yeah, especially when you get like Mahomes. <laughs> that that's the joke we keep making is it makes everything else smell better. It doesn't matter yes. what crap crappy decision you make after that. It's like hey, we still got fifteen back there, and he's gonna win us at least six games just by himself, just and by the, lining up. The dearth of first round picks is just a yeah. different version of those crappy decisions. You're just wasting those same resources, and that's why I think that some of the mistakes the Chiefs have made, some of the mistakes the Seahawks have made are a useful way to kind of understand this practically rather than just listing off 
here's seven first round picks by putting names to it and looking at some of those missteps and some of that process. I think you get a better understanding of it. All right. Matt Philbin asks this. I like this one. He's wondering if there's a football equivalence to the three true outcome problem that baseball is having in terms of the on the field product. So for example, if teams start going for four downs more, they get to a place where the running game is practically eliminated. Does the NFL product suffer from teams being too efficient? And I think this is an encouraging thing about football in that the most efficient things on a football field are also the most exciting. So it the teams trending toward efficiency and better decision-making is making the game better for television. Going forward on fourth down is exciting. It leads yeah. to more points. Throwing the ball more is exciting. It leads to more points. Poorly designed runs and cowardly punts and that way of operating is a worse version of football on TV. So I almost think it's coming from two different directions. It's more efficient and it will drive interest in the sport. So I don't think the football is going to run into that problem at all. And even defensively, I think teams are getting more and more aggressive or at least, you know, simulating it and whatnot as far as bringing pressures. And, you know, usually the philosophy behind blitzing is gash or be gashed, which leads to more exciting football and more points to gashes. (laughs) It leads to gashes on either end, which is exciting. Sacks can be exciting. Like sacks, like when, I mean, in a high scoring game, the Chiefs Rams game from two years ago. Perfect example. Aaron Donald had a fumble return for a touchdown. That was so much fun. Like, you know, multiple defensive touchdowns in that game. And it's so exciting because it's points. It's points. It's short fields and points, you know? So I'm fine with that. What, what fascinates me um, is the progression of analytics like in football because I think football is, you know, it's like a five-year buffer behind basketball, which has a five-year buffer behind baseball, you know? Yeah. So you can almost see the path football is about to go on with this stuff is I, I still, there is value to running the ball. Don't get me wrong. And of course, I'm, I'm a football guy, so I'm going to have that philosophy, but it's, when you watch baseball, if you read Moneyball, one of the things that was so I, I've always stuck out to me was that at the time it was creating runs and limiting outs, you know, working the count, and, and you know they're finding the inefficiencies, working the count, all that. What they didn't care about was fielding or base running, and they they're like, no, you don't steal bases because that's just losing it out. We are they were like they were like ten percent of what the next highest team was for steal attempts. What I found so fascinating with baseball is they realized over the years fielding does matter, base running does matter and but also like catch framing for like a catcher yep and how many runs that can save how many outs that creates you know and over a whole season it's like holy crap catchers are extremely valuable with their framing what i i what really want to see is if we get to that point with running the ball where we find a way to analyze this and the human element that is in these games like does so if in pitching the human element is what working the umpire that that's a human element that is getting manipulated and some guys are better at than others. Running the ball is it's there's a human effect to it. Not just the clock, oh, you're controlling the clock. And you know, I know that's an old adage, but it is true. But also just the human effects that running the ball can have. One of our first conversations on this podcast, we were talking about, you know, even though you know Derek Henry is about to run the ball, like why do teams like you know, or I'm sorry, no, the, why do teams still come up on the play action? It's because yeah, probably because that guy who just tackled Derrick Henry wasn't really happy about <laughs> working backwards and, that, and taking a knee to the face. There's a human element to it. And I just do think there is some value to running the ball. We love the Shanahan offense. We love the McVay offense. That Rams team was super exciting. And they were predominantly running the ball uh, from two years ago or three years ago now. Oh, my God, we're getting old. And it's just one of those things that I just 
I, I'm curious. I'm very curious if there is going to be some study or some way, some way to break through of why running the ball does matter because I do truly do think it does. Even though now, I think that balance of what Andy Reid is finding, I think that's the extreme. But I think more teams are going to drift to that. But I do think there's going to be some way to find the value of that. Even if it's, yeah, we only average four and a half yards a carry. And when we throw it, it's seven and a half yards. Yeah, that's three extra yards. But finding just ways that like why that matters and why running the ball and why getting an advantage in the run game and controlling that way of winning football contributes to winning football. Like I'm just very, very curious what what steps come from that. And the analytical side of that, I think, is fascinating. And I, But the questions for me with that is, are you protecting your quarterback? Are you protecting your line? Yeah. How often do you need to throw your line of bone to keep them engaged and just give them a playoff if you're dropping back 65 times a game? How often do you need to run the ball and how well mm-hmm. do you need to run the ball to give credence to play action? You don't need a good running game, but are your runs tied to your passes? If if you the runs look convincing and things like I just think there's so many different factors. It's not binary runs bad, passes good. Like yeah. it just it just can't be that way. And it shouldn't be that way. And I think that finding that balance is important. Even a team like the Browns, the Browns are one of the most analytically forward teams in the NFL. Their running game was a huge part of their success last year. So a team like that, that's trying to think about this stuff in an advanced way. It's not, let's not care about running the ball. It's how many times can we run the ball and still maximize our efficiency as an offense? Mm -hmm. If we're looking at the pie chart of plays, how much should be running? How much should be straight drop back pass? How much should be play action? And there are NFL teams that are thinking about it like this. They are looking at some of the percentages. There are teams looking at what the Titans have done. And that the yes. Titans, I think, are a good example where it's a little too far. The dial on the runs is a little too high, but the dial on the play actions is higher than any other team in the NFL. And it allows them to be the most efficient offense in the league since Ryan Tannehill took over during the regular season. So teams are going to look at that and say, all right, how do we tick our play action up closer to 40 than it is right now? How do we get up there and figure out all of this stuff? I think that teams are thinking about stuff that way, but I still believe that when in the end, when it all comes out in the wash, it's going to be more exciting by teams yes. doing that. It's not going to be less exciting. The yes. only kind of counter example of this is I think losing running backs and having those guys be marginalized makes the game less less enjoyable. Because yeah. if you just think about how we grew up and the players that kind of built the mythology of the NFL, whether it was Jim Brown or Walter Payton or Barry Sanders, Luthanian Tomlinson, those guys being less important sucks just because those were the best athletes. The best player used to play running back. You'd give him the yep. ball and you just let him see what he could do. Those days are over, but I think that losing those guys, that makes the game a little bit less fun. But for the most part, I'm going to say that this is a net positive. Think about all, all the different ways teams are devising methods to get the balls to the, to get the ball to their most exciting players. We had a 149 pound receiver drafted in the second round in yeah. this year's draft. Like, they're just even if we're losing running backs, I think that the pool of playmakers that has now started to exist because of the way the game looks makes up for that to a certain extent. I completely agree. I mean, that's the discussion we've had about the receiver size kind of seem like it's shrinking. 
is we're getting more of these. Now the quarterback positions getting more athletic. All these positions are getting more athletic, which is fun. I mean, it's just fun. The speed is always going to be exciting. <laughs> I yes. mean, you, someone could not watch a football game, but also, or never seen an NFL game, but if it's 42, 35 with a bunch of explosive touchdowns, that's fun. And I think that it's kind of the irony is that we're kind of, even in the more efficient area and efficient era with analytically friendly stuff happening is that actually like explosive passing game is becoming more and more important is, and that's actually, I'm fine with if we're getting rid of quick game and death by a million slants, like that's fine with me. Cause now RPOs are kind of replacing true quick game, unless you're running stick or something like that, where the ball just gets out right away. I think that's great for me. I think so many quarterbacks got ruined and offenses got so terrible because everybody was trying to run a version of a West coast offense with timing, 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 timing. And now I think more, it's becoming play action, heavy boot, heavy half roll, heavy deep play action, or I'm sorry, deep play action concepts, deep drop back concepts. And I like that type of football more And that's totally. gash or B gash. That is touchdown to check down offense. I am fine with that. So it's kind of funny is that the efficiency comes by being more explosive. <laughs> yes, not that's gaining. what I'm saying. It's awesome. It's awesome. Efficiency and excitement are overlapped. And I think yes. that's what's really cool. It's All right. Great part of football. Let's get to our next one here. Cademan Schittler asks, if you had to choose one position to have the best unit in football, what would it be? Also, if you had to choose one to have the worst unit, what would it be? So this is obviously non-quarterback division. You'd pick the yeah. best quarterback if you could. But it's a great question. And, and for me, I've thought about this a lot. And I think that the way that I've considered this is part of the coverage versus pass rush debate. Because five years ago, I would have not even blinked when you asked me this question. I would have said, I'll have the best front four. I will pick the best defensive line every single time. That is what I will start with because I think that's the group that can impact the game independent of other factors in the most considerable way. I still believe that. I think it's yeah. closer. I think the secondary and the front four, the gap between them is smaller than it's ever been because of how fast the ball is getting out, some of those other RPO concepts, everything else. And I, if you said the secondary, I would understand that. I still think having, and also with the great secondary, you can manufacture a pass rush if you need to, if you can blitz a little bit more, everything else. But I still think if you have the best four guys, if you have four unblockable guys up there, it still has the greatest impact on the game. And I think if you asked offensive coordinators what they would rather face, they'd rather face a team with a good secondary than a good pass rush. They are able to tread water better against those teams than they are a team like the 2019 49ers. Yeah. So that, that's that's typically, just, that's, that's where I tend to land. I mean, that that originally I went D-line and I in my head I bet and then my thing was, well, if you do have a good D-line, you do have to worry about your DBs getting shredded. But coaches don't influence and I kind of like went back and forth. And then I just went back to my original answer which was offensive line. <laughs> and I was just like, "Oh, that's kind of my easy choice because a good old line just it keeps you in games. It raises the bar for the whole team, I think, not just offensively. Um I I just truly think a squint proof offensive line. If you have the best offensive line, it, it's, it's unfuckable even by a bad coach. And that, yeah, they can, that's like, true. They that's can, a really good, that's a great, that's they a great can be point. competent and make your shitty quarterback look decent because it's like, all right, at least, yeah. Okay. We have this play. Yeah. This guy can maybe get this ball off in a clean pocket. Well, if we give him a clean pocket 80% of the time, that's really nice. So I think, I think the offensive line, just cause it helps raise your bar. And then, no matter what the other options are, are on your offense, you have an average quarterback, average receivers. At least you can get to the, the pretty play that you drew up on Wednesday 
uh, when you run on Sunday because a bad offensive line could just absolutely tank you. I know we're just saying the best position, but I would say that's that would be the one for me. I've thought a lot about that. I've really reconsidered just the offensive line versus the weapons and which is more important. And I, I understand the appeal of having just an offensive line that allows you to function and yeah. great, great weapons. And I think that I've trended more in that direction than, again, I would have been five years ago. But I'd have to interrogate it a little bit more. I still think my answer is defensive line just because that group can wreck a game. That, that yeah. group can destroy another offense. And I still truly believe that. Worst unit, it's pretty easy for me, is running backs. I mean, that's almost like a cheap answer. The other one would be a linebacker. I mean, if you look at it, you can get by in today's game without great linebacker play. The Rams yeah. were the best defense in the NFL last year. They didn't have any linebackers. With the no-name so, team, yeah. Yeah, I, I still think that, that is, that's the easiest one outside of running back for me. Yeah, I have, I have running back and linebacker for obvious reasons, what I said. And I'd say if I want to change it up, I would say tight end. I uh, I yeah. think you can get I think you can get by with a shitty yep. tight end group. I, I I do. It's not preferred, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you can get by in a modern offense without without a decent tight end group. All right, Lawrence Sherfield asks, "What is your biggest miss and biggest hit on a draft prospect?" I'll let you go first. Who's your biggest hit? We're going non first rounders, right? Like, not first. Because uh, I I've, I've yes, both categories. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. If we're going non first rounders, Trey Flowers easily mine the the defensive line version the edge player not the db that's probably easily mine he went in the fourth round i even graded him at the time had a high grade on him i, I loved him i could rattle off a whole bunch and it's mostly gonna be the 2015 16 17 drafts um but you know trey flowers joe thuny david johnson i love david johnson when he's coming out and even you did Zedarius, love david johnson coming out i'm gonna give I you credit for that one david johnson go out and even zadarius smith i really liked i did not think he was gonna be this the don't do not. I'm not going to take credit for that. But yeah, that's I why you watched, went the fifth round. Yeah, I had to watch Bud Dupree, and I was like, you know, the other guy's not bad either. Like I thought he would be that's a really good, funny. good, good pro, but I just didn't think he'd be that. Other guys I liked. I, I was high on Grady Jarrett, but he. I think everybody in the Atlanta Falcons room was. Um, Michael Thomas, I was really high on when he came mm -hmm. out, and then Chris Jones and Preston Smith were other two. Those guys, I, I I just really liked. If we're going first rounders, Aaron Donald, because I just got to the Falcons right after I was at Pitt. He was a top. 14 picks so it's not that crazy but i was telling everyone there he's the greatest player <laughs> i've seen he was unblockable in two years i was with him um justin jefferson as you know tj watt and kenny clark those would be the other first rounders that are kind of my guys um i can get into misses in a sec but <laughs> aaron donald is my on my list just because i mean you were listening to our show back then i was yeah. adamant that I would have taken him second overall in that yeah. draft. I I still thought that Clowney and the bet on Clowney with that physical profile was worth it. I even to this day, I st I don't think the Texans made a mistake by picking Clowney no. first overall in that draft. But yeah, you can go back and listen to the shows. I don't even know if they're still available anymore. But Barnwell and I both were like, "That's the that's the second best guy." I mean, I just it was ridiculous. I, I I thought it even back then. There's no hindsight involved. The other guy recently that I loved coming out and wrote about it, there are receipts. I loved George Kittle. I, I just oh, remember right. yep. I remember watching him in the lead up to that draft and the physical upside was outstanding. I mean, he ran a four five two, ninety-eighth percentile broad jump. And guys with that athletic profile and frame, he was like six four, two fifty, they don't jump off the tape as blockers. And at Iowa, he was just fucking burying dudes. I mean, yeah. just destroying people. So when I watched him, I was like, well, what do you want? Like yeah. the production isn't there, but who is going to get pass catching production at Iowa? Yeah. So 
I I, th- I loved him. Him going in the fifth round never made sense to me. And then Dar- uh, Donald, I just we were all over that. I mean, that's just something. I obviously only fell at fourteen, but when I think the guy's the best player, and now he's the best defense player of his generation and a Hall of Famer, like I felt pretty good about that one. My misses <laughs> always receivers, always <laughs> like that is just. I just have no idea what what is going to be good, what is going to be bad. You and I have talked about this. I like Josh Doxson. I thought oh my God, was, that's my number one. That was my that's my number one. It's Josh Doxson. <laughs> Josh Doxson coming out of TCU, all like the acrobatic contested catch stuff. I yep. just like, oh, if you can do that, that translates. I, t- I don't think that at all anymore. And then yep. my other guy, I loved Tavon Austin. I thought Tavon Austin was just going to be incredible. I wrote about him back then. It was like my second year covering the league. I didn't know shit. And I'm watching him play. I was like, oh, that guy's exciting. Greatest and highlight I, tape ever on YouTube. I, I, but that's I, I watched highlights when I was that age. I didn't know what yeah. I was watching. And yeah. in my opinion, that guy was just I wrote a big story about how he was like the future of position of like skill position players in the NFL. <laughs> Honestly, my experience with Tavon Austin in that draft and getting burned by it has still scarred me. Like players yeah. of that profile, I'm always a little bit apprehensive about, which anyone who listens to the show has probably picked up on. And it's partially because of what I went through with hyping up Tavon Austin and the results that came out of that. If anyone wants to know where my whole like quote unquote grudge against drafting receivers early, it's because of Troy Williamson in 2005. Yeah. Like, yes. Everything, yes. everything it comes from that. Like, and I could tell you right now, and I, I actually didn't even realize that until I was talking to some other people and I was like, Oh my God, that's where it comes from. Josh Doxon, my missus, Josh Doxon. Yeah. That's, I really liked him. Uh, that draft class, that receiver draft class wasn't great. Anyways. Um, I was actually high on Shane Ray. But it was a great lesson to learn about athletic thresholds and and that type of thing. And that was I was new to the scouting side of the NFL. We have talked about this. I was more like, hey, watch him on tape, dude. This guy's yeah. smart. This guy has a pass rushing technique. Oh my God, he's using like, you know, he doesn't even have a change up. He has four pitches with his pass rushing move. Oh my God. And then I realized, you know, yeah, when I met him in person, I was you like, weighed 230 pounds. Yeah. I met him in person. I was like, man, I like dwarf you like that's not good i'm not spending a first round pick on you so um another one i'll admit it i was i this really taught me too especially with quarterbacks how much the interview process is important is paxton lynch i was high on paxton lynch yeah you were he went exactly kind of where i would have taken him i didn't think he was a top 10 lottery pick quarterback but i was high on him i thought he just statistically also just watching my film he's putting stuff on the money also realized after simplistic offense yeah, they just kind of got away with what he could do and they just kind of went with that. Also, that's where the interview process comes in because, you know, some more <laughs> alarm bells would have cropped up with that about what he can learn and, you know, his uh, commitment to the game and all that fun stuff, whatever scouting adage you want to say. Um, another one guy I was super high on and he kind of dropped out just more of injuries was a guy, he went in the second round to the Saints, was Haloi Kikaha. Um, yes, we've talked is- about him. I loved him coming out and, but he was like a medical, not even just a reject, like just off the board medically. And that it was a good lesson to learn about medicals and how that holds up and the guy going to the NFL, but I was super high on him. I had like a high first round grade on him or a good top 20 grade on him basically. Uh, but yeah, that was another one that I was like, that was a total miss. And that was other stuff though. That was the 2015 draft. I wrote a big story about Danny Shelton before that draft. Yes. And they played together at Washington. So I was watching a lot of Floyd Kaka and I was like, that dude is awesome. Like yep. speaking of pass rush nuance, like that guy had 20 different things in his bag that Monster. he could throw at you and just 
both the uh, the medicals and his athletic testing was nightmarish. Bad, right? yeah. He ran like a four nine something in the forty. I want to say. Oh, if we both year. remember that, we're both like, and, oh yeah, you ran like a, I was about to say you probably ran like a four nine two. I remember that. Yeah, too. it was. It was. I think it might have been exactly four nine two. It was not a great situation. <laughs> this is just like All gambling, right. though. It's like you don't remember anything you win. You oh, only no, remember the losses. That's yes. the exact same equivalent to that. That's how I live my life. All right, <laughs> Ken, Ken Swanson. This is a long question, but so. He wanted to appeal to your board game sensibilities here. Loved it. So he said, we often hear about what the dominant strategy in the NFL is at any time, but it seems like the general strategy seemed to rise, fall, and then come back, which makes me wonder if the dominant strategy in any one time is is partially determined by the market for players needed for that strategy, what their market price is, how many are available. So with this in mind, he asks, you know, is the Seattle cover three, did that fail or fall off a little bit because the players for it were so in demand? And the question is, do you think that scheme dominance is partially determined by the market and thus set to change as the market balances out? So I think this is a really interesting question. And it almost touches on what you were talking about before with the play action versus timing aspects of the passing game. So I don't think that the Seattle cover three system has broken down because there weren't the players were so in demand. I think it broke down because you needed super talented players to run it. And there are only so many players. If you run the Seattle baseline cover three system with Cliff Averill, Michael Bennett, Bobby Wagner, Richard Sherman, Byron Maxwell, Earl Thomas, and Richard Sherman, or and, and Cam Chancellor, it's going to look pretty damn good. Yeah. If you run it with the personnel that the Falcons had over the last five years, it's not going to look as good. So it's not that those guys are getting scooped up and there aren't enough of them. There's aren't enough of them, period. And I think what we've seen with the Shanahan offense tree, which is uh, which Ken alluded to, I think it's not as much about the market forces of players getting scooped up. I think it's which offensive and defensive schemes allow you to succeed with lesser talent. And I think that's why this play-action-heavy type of offense has come into vogue in the NFL, because if there's an offense that can make above a below average quarterbacks look average above average quarterbacks look like really good and good yeah. port- and good quarterbacks look like MVPs that offense is going to become more and more popular and that's exactly what's happened so in my opinion what's happened over the last 5 years or so is that and i think the same is true for defense and the two high stuff that we may see coming now if you can succeed without linebackers with safeties that run a 465 with undersized defensive backs, all of that kind of stuff, it's going to be more popular because you don't need as good of players to succeed with that system. So I think that's what drives it, and that's what's driving it right now. Can you get by with lesser players at important positions? And I think that's what we're seeing, and and to me, that is the most important factor. Yeah, yeah, just kind of nailed on the head. Yeah, good players kind of dictate what you do on offense and defense. And I think the Seahawks' Legion of Boom days was – I mean, just one of those rare, amazing, brilliant, you know, situation, scheme, players that they got. Like Richard Sherman, like big, long corners, like it is, they used to just kind of be frowned upon. They're like, oh, they're too stiff hip. They can't, you know, keep up with these guys. You can't work them from the slot. And then they got into Vogue and it kind of like everyone's trying to run it, trying to run it. But it was just kind of like Richard Sherman was undervalued at the time because he was a converted receiver, all those types of things. And then also they, you know, Cam Chancellor, same thing. He was a tweener. And they found a use for him. They're like, hey, you're good at this. Hey, let's just run this scheme and let's keep it simple. We only run these certain things. Like Seahawks were above on the trend. They did a couple couple 
interesting things. You know, they, they, the Leo position that everyone knows, which is hilarious that it's just an edge player. But with that, they put him on the right-hand side because the quarter, most quarterbacks are right-handed. Oh, wow. I know that's crazy revolutionary, but no one was really doing it <laughs> until 10 years ago. They put the best corner to the quarterback's right-handed side because that's a, it's easier to throw to that side. Just little tweaks like that. You know, so it's kind of just more like they, they just maximized what they had. Um, I don't think there's much variance in between what NFL teams really do run. I think there are tweaks where, like you said, with the, the Titans example, okay, the play action's cranked up to 12. We'll run it at nine. But as far as like scheme, scheme wise, like everyone kind of runs a little bit of everything. It's just kind of what you emphasize. But I think it's just good players kind of dictate what you run. Offensively with the Shannon stuff, if that's the meta right now, I think it's so much easier to find athletic zone running offensive linemen now. Yep, that's another good example. Yep. Any guard that can pull. You know, a pulling guard is a very uh, difficult thing to find that's actually athletic enough to hold up in the NFL and doesn't trip over over themselves. Otherwise, it would just be nothing but Wisconsin linemen. But I, I think that the only scheme prep that they have is, you know, they like their interior guys to be good athletes and also like fullbacks might come back more in vogue because just the positional flexibility that they allow, you can move them. It's a true move guy that can really open up things for you offensively. So I think that's like one thing scheme wise. That's like, okay, maybe those guys will crop up more and you see guys getting drafted in the fifth or sixth as opposed to just undrafted guys. But I really do think it's a chicken and the egg thing. It's, it's uh you know, coaches spread throughout the league and they think that they, we need this specific personnel when the Falcon staff came or uh, the Seahawks staff came to the Falcons, Dan Quinn and all them, they were like, oh, you know, Robert Alford's a better scheme fit for us. And it was like, well, Desmond Trufant's a better player. So, yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's, doesn't matter. And Trufant played very well for a couple of years, but they thought they needed the specific guy. We need long corners, 32 inch minimum arms, all that stuff. But it's really, it's more like, hey, just good players and then run the scheme. We'll, they'll figure it out. And also, it helps the Seahawks had a football genius who's also a maniac playing safety. Um, that also covered up a lot. Uh, I'll never forget Earl Thomas. They show this tape when he came in. And he's covering numbers to numbers from the post. And on the next play, he's flying down and sweep tackling a running back eight yards down the field. And it was just like, holy crap, that guy's amazing. So that's I think my it's just a perfect. That's the exact example to me of why there aren't more of those defenses, because there are just, there's aren't that many guys like that. There's no. very, very few players who can play in the post and cover that amount of ground. So why yes. would you copy that defense when you need a player like that? Exactly. It's it's such a hard need like there's not many you know why there's not a lot of good tall corners is because usually they go in the top 10 the one <laughs> the one <laughs> yes. it's usually the big corners are going early so that's maybe why we can't find these guys very undervalued anymore because there's not a lot of them and the ones that you are can good, find some six three guys with yeah. 35 inch arms he's gonna run a four six five but yeah, if you want that guy can't you can find him yeah and he can't turn and he can't like drop his hit you know drop his feet step back and like turn the hips and all that stuff so yeah, it's just one of those things where it's, yeah, you're going to emphasize certain guys, but the best coaches kind of just go, okay, this is what we have. I like my scheme. We'll make it work, and we'll go from there. All right, Thomas Barkley from Australia asks, a quarterback has traditionally been seen as the foundational piece of a rebuild. Given the importance of infrastructure for a young quarterback, has that changed? If you were in charge of a rebuilding team, would you draft a quarterback first, or would you wait until you're confident in the support structure in place and then go get your quarterback? Or to continue the tortured metaphor, is the quarterback the foundation or the roof of a rebuild? I love this question because I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I don't know what the best answer is because we've seen recent success stories in both cases. But I'm curious what you think. I 
think it's just there's no perfect answers at a cop I think out. So but too. I, I just is you just try and find whatever guy you can to take you over the top and go with it. Uh, uh it's curious to me, like Oh, I, I, we're going to knock him again, but the Lions and Broncos passing someone like Fields because <laughs> not all first round quarterbacks are built the same. So like in theory, it's like, yeah, we're going to give ourselves the opportunity to pivot. And then this next draft will take our guy at quarterback. And it's kind of like, how do you know our guy is going to be in this next draft? Like, cause Justin Fields doesn't come along at every draft. The guy that drops like him, you know, to 11 and, and like, you don't see, or, or, you know, wherever you went, uh, but you don't see it go at that point. It, it's, he went 11. I just don't think that, he did go 11th. I, I, yeah. I, that should be incredible. I'll, I'll remember that for a long, long time, I hope. I know. I know. It's, he's, he's wearing number one too, right? Or oh, yeah. also? He's, he's oh, number yeah. one oh. on the field and in my heart. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't believe we did that live. That was awesome. But it's it's. I, I just think that in theory, yeah, we, we build up ways to pivot and we do all that. But it's like when you get a guy, just go with it. And, and, just, and then that dictates all everything else. Everything else will fall in place as soon as you get your guy. I think we've seen, again, examples on both sides. If you look at some of the best success stories in recent years, Mahomes' ultimate example of everything ultimate. else is in place, you drop them in. Watson, they weren't as good. I think that there were questions about that infrastructure, but they were still a borderline playoff team and had to trade up to go get him. So there were pieces in place. You had Hopkins there, stuff like that. Wentz, that's a team that had a lot of yep. talent on it. That's why, I mean, you saw him succeed in his second year in part because of the strength of that roster. Yep. Goff is an interesting one. They had to trade up to get him. But a lot of the transformative pieces on that roster came in in the first McVay offseason. Yeah. So it's it's not really a situation where they had a lot of the pieces in place, even though they weren't picking at the top of the draft. I think Lamar is another amazing example of this, obviously. Getting a quarterback without bottoming out, you have... A, a strong, a healthy franchise, a healthy roster. They're never going to rebuild in Baltimore because they're too good to rebuild. So they needed to come across a guy like Lamar and they just happened to hit it correctly. But there are also other examples of guys jumpstarting the rebuild. Cam Newton was just a yeah. from square one guy. Andrew Luck from square one. Yep. Josh Allen, they traded up to get him, but they rebuilt the entire offensive roster around him in the first year. Kyler Murray, square Kyle. one. And I think the best recent examples of this, Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow were from square one and both of them looked very good. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's a, I think ideally you'd have the team in place and you'd trade up to go get a guy. I think that's what the Colts have been trying to do mm -hmm. is when we'll talk about the Colts in a second, but they're building up the infrastructure and you just kind of get your guy and you figure it out. I think the most important thing though, isn't the order of operations it's the help you have in place beyond the roster. Yes. So when you look at some of these guys that have succeeded, whether the players were in place or not, it took McVay getting there for Goff to look like a decent quarterback. If Josh Allen, without Brian Dable, does all of this come together, even if they found a couple useful receivers? The Eagles offense was a revolutionary machine in 2017. I mean, it looked unlike any other RPO-based offense we'd seen in the NFL to that extent. Lamar is in perfect circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you could say, we have a great team. Let's draft Lamar Jackson 32nd overall. If you don't have the plan for him, it doesn't end up working. So I think that it's, again, it's a cop out, like you said, but I don't know if there's a perfect way to do it. I just think that having all of the other secondary factors in place to support and spur on your quarterback's development, that's as important to me as the overall roster health. Like with, Herbert, for example, right? The offensive line was a nightmare. It was an absolute yeah. nightmare, but he's good. 
And now you bring in a new coaching staff. They rebuild the offensive line in a year. That's a difficult needle to thread, but that order is okay if you're going to put in the right people around him in short order. So again, it's difficult to say. I, I could mm-hmm. see it any. I could see it both ways. All right. Speaking of the Colts, Brett Ungeschick asks er, on Twitter, "Do we overrate the Colts team building, patience, and value?" because it reminds us of the Pats who had Brady to cover some of it up. With Leonard and Nelson do their money and then projected to have the least amount of draft capital next year, it feels like this middle-way approach leads to a lot of 10 and 7 years. Chris Romanow also asked a similar question about Quiddy Pay and transitioning from Read and React that I want to ask you about. But what, what do you think about that question about if we're overrating the Colts approach here? I, I want to talk about the Colts because there's been a lot of Colts discourse here in the last week that I want to dig through. Yeah. I don't think we overrate it at all. Um, I think like we've talked about already on the show is I think what they're doing is they're trying to acquire a QB. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're doing what other, the one question, the last question was they're building up everything around just so they can figure out how to find a QB. Um, I think this and, is a question about, are they going, are they being aggressive enough in free agency on, uh, along with this? I think, I think that's bit, the thing, but I, I'm fine with it because it's like, do you want to also get Carson Wentz and just go, okay, let's blow our load on, on what we don't know. And I, I get that. So I think that's I, I exactly know. it. That is exactly yeah. it. And it's those contracts. I mean, those contracts are coming up that he just brought up, but they have the cap room. So I'm not worried about that. I mean, if they sell, if they carry they, I mean, most was, of this over, if they carry over $10 million, they might have $90 million in cap yeah. space next I mean, year. And I know we keep saying this, you know, they have all this cap space they never use. I don't think they know that Carson Wentz is a guy worth going in for. Yeah, and if I if you ask Chris, he said this in February, but I think I think if you ask Chris Bauer right now today, after the draft, after free agency, do you think this team is a Super Bowl team? He would say no. Oh, and I I, because that. I think he's honest with himself, so yeah. I think that's part of it. But also, let's look at the last four drafts, okay? Since Bauer got there, here are the players, some of the players that the Colts have acquired with their draft capital: Grover Stewart. Quentin Nelson, Darius Leonard, Braden Smith, Naheem Hines, Kari Willis, Michael Pittman Jr., Jonathan Taylor, Julian Blackman, and they used last year's first-round pick on DeForest Buckner. Which worked out. <laughs> Mark Lewinsky and Kenny Moore were cut-down day guys that they okay. just signed. And I, they will tell you that was not luck. They, they, are, they do their homework on every single draft prospect just in case. And they have mm-hmm. gotten some guys on cut-down day as a result of that. This team has gone 18 and 14 over the last two seasons when their top five quarterback retired on the eve of the season. It does. I it's think we should pretty, take it easy here on, I, on our criticisms honestly, of this team. My second bullet point I had here, I said, even if they still had Andrew Luck, we'd be tap dancing about what the Colts are doing and building around him. It's yes. like they, the fact that they're even competent, uh, what happened to them is like, Okay, why is anyone? Why can anyone get harsh on this team? They haven't had a top ten pick. I mean, they had Nelson. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like they had that quarterback. I don't know. Nothing lined up for them exactly how how it should have, and they're still competent. Uh, I'm fine with it. I really am. I, I just don't. I, I think that, like you said, the honest assessment of knowing no, this is not a Super Bowl team right now. It's because if they said if they were like typical team, like eighty percent of the other teams, they would go, "We got our guy now. Let's go all in. This is our window." And it's like, and then you're double screwed. And then it's like, okay, if we're wrong on a couple of this, we are, well, I mean, the hole that we build for ourselves is so rough because now it's the classic term, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And that's literally in this sense, because then the cap room gets different. You stretch out different, your window changes. 
I'm fine with it. I, I, I don't see any causes for concern at this point in time. They, it's just so funny. I think when I think about this stuff and when people on the outside think about this stuff, they're looking at the whole left tackle they had coming into the draft and coming out of it being like, yeah. what are they going to do? They needed, they needed to draft a left tackle in the first two rounds. And they signed Eric Fisher. And, they're, and they're good. if Eric Fisher is not ready until October 1st, they're going to play Sam Tevy for four games. They're going to help him out and they're going to survive. And that's why Chris Ballard is better at this than us. Yeah. It's because he thinks about it that way. And he knows that he's going to be able to get guys that aren't on his roster today that are going to be able to contribute by the time the season is over. And that's why their roster is as healthy as it's been. Yeah. They're going to wait to see what happens with Wentz. Yeah. And even if they sign Nelson Leonard and Smith, the contract extensions, they're going to. Nelson's cap number is 13.8 next year. That could be lower if they sign him to an extension. There's a chance they're going to have 85 million, 90 million in space next year. And if Wentz hits, then maybe they make the push. Yeah. Then yeah. maybe you go for it. You don't have a first round pick if he hits, but if he hits, who gives a shit if you don't have yeah. a first round pick? Then you use that money and you say, we're going to finish this off now. But now that question of whether he's good or not, you open yourself to other avenues if he's not. If he sucks or gets hurt this year, you're out a second next year. We're good. You cut him. He's a $15 million dead cap hit. You got $90 million in space. We're back to where we started. And I just think that they've set themselves up to make the move when they're ready to make the move. They're not ready yet. But if you look at this offense right now, you have Eric Fisher possibly playing left tackle. You'd still have a top three offensive line if you get 12 games out of him at 80% of what he was. On the skill position side of this, Michael Pittman in year two, he came on mm -hmm. really strong at the end of last season. Paris Campbell possibly coming back. T.Y. Mm -hmm. Hilton's not the most exciting thing in the world, but those three guys as your three receivers, if Campbell can stay healthy and they like Desmond Patman, this is still an interesting team. They just are not ready to push all their chips into the table yet, and I understand that. Yeah. I just, again, I don't understand the criticism of this. They lost Andrew Luck on the eve of the season, and they've gone 18 and 14 over the last two years, including an 11 and 5 year. And maybe you can make an argument that they're not better now than they were at the end of last season. I think that's a realistic argument, but I still think that they're set up to be good for the next several years because they haven't committed to one version of this roster. And like even how, okay, after Luck retired, like how they handled, handled the Jacoby Brissett situation. And it was just like, that just shows how they kind of like, uh, even I don't want to say like always oh, five steps ahead, but just a step ahead. Or always he, like you mentioned, thinks this thing's out, how Bauer thinks these things out. He transferred Jacoby Brissett, got rid of a reacher at Philip Dorsett. But then the next year, he just signs him for like a, I think he just signed him for like a two-year deal or, or it might've been going into 2019. Yeah, going into 2019, they signed him for a two-year deal, $30 million contract. Cause they're like, okay, at least we can just, this guy can make us look okay. And like, we know he's not a star. Yeah, we probably overpaid for him, but it's like, hey, that's fine. We have the room to do this. And now we can pivot to getting a guy like Philip Rivers. And, you know, who got him to the playoffs. And it's like, that's great. That's just good team building. It's like, I think we always, always want the star quarterback. We want the star that you can't win without the star. You can't, you need these stars at these positions. And it's like, sometimes good team building is just getting a bunch of good players. And then, and then like what they have all that cap room and then the ability that he's trading all the time, he just had always gives himself opportunities to pivot, which I think is the best thing you can do as a GM. And right now, He's just setting up and just going, okay, we're going to be competent. We're going to be probably really, you know, frisky with a lot of teams. If Wentz hits, holy crap, watch out. But, you know, I, I could take frisky and maybe a playoff appearance. And then, you know what? 
If it doesn't work out, okay, we're back where we were. We lose that second round pick, like you just said, and now we can figure out the next way we can pivot. And I'm fine with that. I just think that's good team building. I think so too. I think that they have set themselves up well, and I know it can be frustrating, and I know that as you watch all these other teams go for it, yeah. it's going to be, it's, it's, there's part of you, it's like, man, what are they doing? Like, why aren't they doing this? And I, I just think that they understand this is not the time to do it. Also, they're a cash to cap team. Like they're not going to be putting voidable years on contracts and doing all of this other stuff. And I think that's another thing to consider. I mean, there are some teams just aren't going to operate that way financially with the way that the Saints do it, with the way that, uh, excuse me, the the Bucks even did it this year. There's some teams that are just not going to do that kind of stuff. And the Colts are one of those teams. All right. Surrealism, Steve, similar conversation. How do you think teams who are more or less rebuilt but haven't won a title should handle short-term and long-term balance? This is a long way of asking if the Bills should trade for Julio Jones. I'm curious what some of the best, worst examples of making these all-in decisions are going to be. And he brings up the Colts as an example on the other side. So I, I think that this is about short-term bets that refresh areas of your roster. And I think the Browns are a good example of this. Bets like Malik Jackson, Jadevian, Clowney to kind of say like, all right, this is the version of what our defense is going to look like this year. We have a chance to go in on it next year. So I would just try to make some short-term Will Fuller with the Dolphins, I think, is a good example. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, here's nine million bucks for a year. This is going to give us a really good chance. It's going to make us explosive in the short term. We have flexibility after this. So those are the types of dice rolls I would tend to take. Tyron Matthews signing with the Texans a couple of years ago, I think, is another really good example. Some of these one or two year short-term deals where you're making your team better in the short term. You're giving yourself a different version, especially in defense, I, I think is a good way to think about this because yeah. I don't. I wouldn't build foundationally on defense. I would just try to spice it up every single year and make it slightly different versions of what it was to try to get myself over the top. And I think that's what some of these teams are doing. So that's what I would do. I, I would just, my all-in moves would be short-term moves to give myself flexibility in the long term. Yeah, we, we kind of touched on this with the last answer, but it's, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, even even with the Colts signing a guy like Justin Houston to a two-year deal, like stuff Ex- like that. Exactly, just, exactly. It, it's it's um, the Falcons a few years ago signing Dwight Freeney. You know, like just, I think that's such a great point about defensively is that I think the role players, it's just, it's a rotating cast. It's like, okay, yep. this year we had this guy in this role. This year we have this guy, he's 80% as good, but our linebacker, our Mike that we signed for our two-year deal is just, okay, he's a little better than the Mike we had last year. Okay, we're, you know, that's what I think. I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Um, I think we always categorize everything into tidy boxes, but it's really every team's window is built and open in a variety of ways. So there's no real defined answer. Um, uh, of course, you want to accumulate picks, build slowly, but sometimes just that situation and in your hand is forced based on what you have. So I, I just think the best way, it's kind of obvious, and I will say it again, is just give yourself opportunities to pivot. <laughs> and I think that's the best way to look at it. Um, I don't know if any best or worse, worse examples I have because every team you can knock every signing they have. It's like some some work out, some don't work out. Um, I think the best ones are the ones that we just brought up, some of those pass rushers that teams get on one or two years deals um, or maybe, you know, shit the bucks signing antonio brown to half a year contract you know that that's great uh, like that's a fun move but it's like i i don't know that's just that's where weird one-offs in situations so it's so hard to to really say oh well, i should do this or i shouldn't do this because every team's gonna be so much different i would handle it the way the bills are handling it right now yeah my i would look for continuity offensively 
which is what they did. They brought back everyone on their offense, especially the offensive line. They Emmanuel Sanders is the ultimate example of this guy. It's like, all right, we're going to drop Emmanuel yes. Sanders in here as our second outside receiver. The Saints did it last year. The yep. Bills did it this year. Drop in Emmanuel Sanders, draft two pass rushers. That's our refresh. Yep. That's how I would do it. It is pretty much yep. exactly how the Bills have done it this year. I would look for swings at high-value positions in the draft, and I would try to find one little different ingredient offensively that I didn't have the year before. And, and that's pretty much what Buffalo has done this spring. Yeah. All right. Guys, that's all we got. We got so many more, but we're already at like 90 minutes here. We could do this for hours. We're not going to. That's all we got for today. We will be back next week starting the programming that we're doing in the offseason. Really, really excited about some of the names we're going to have on, some of the things that we're going to do. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. We've got tons of great offseason content coming your way. Theathletic.com slash football show. Please subscribe there. We will be back next week. Appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.